He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. may be seated. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? It's a question that people will ask that is just as much of a, a prod or a goad. It's a statement, really. What are you waiting for? Which is to say, get on with it already. Let's go. It's the kind of question, rhetorical question, that you ask when you're sitting at the stoplight and it turns green and the guy in front of you is still looking at his phone. You say, what are you waiting for? It's a question that parents ask their kids when they're trying to get them out of the house. Quit dilly-dallying. What are you waiting for? It's a question that we might even sometimes in prayer ask God. God, what are you waiting for? There's also a, a literal meaning, of course, to the question, which is to say, what is the, the content of your expectation? What are you waiting for? What is it that you are hoping in, looking forward to? What is it that you are waiting for? That's the question that today's vision from Revelation answers for us. What it is that we are waiting for. With just a, a few brief verses, John paints this beautiful picture, the new heavens and the new earth. But when we see in this vision, we see what we are waiting for, but we also see why what we are waiting for is worthwhile. Why it is that we wait in hope and in expectation. But in order to, to fully grasp that why, the significance of this picture, if we're going to, to see the full vista of the vision, the full panorama of the picture, we need to look at the larger scope of Scripture. We need to zoom out from this particular vision of the end and go back all the way to the beginning. When we do that, we'll see what it is that we are waiting for and why it is so worthwhile. Because in the beginning, there was a wedding. Now, this is not the way that we typically think about the creation story of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 recounts the making of matter. It's the creation of all that exists, which of course is true. But biblical scholars through the ages, going back to the ancient rabbis, saw something more going on in that creation of the cosmos than just the mere making of matter. They also saw in it the making of a marriage. And the way that we see this, it goes back to uh, an ancient uh, concept, an idea, which is still practiced by observant Jews to this day. And that was the practice of the chuppah. Sounds kind of fun to say, right? The chuppah, which is usually translated as canopy. And if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you know that the chuppah is the canopy under which the bride and groom are married. Now, what does that have to do with Genesis chapter 1? Well, biblical scholars have pointed out that in Genesis chapter 1, it speaks of this kind of canopy starting on the second day of creation when God creates, most translations say, an expanse in the heavens. But that might otherwise be translated as a canopy, 
And it shows up over and over and over again in the creation account that God has created this canopy so that as he is making the world, it's also suggesting that perhaps in some strange way, he's also making a marriage. Psalm 19, one of the great psalms of creation, picks up on the same idea. Remember Psalm 19, it starts out by saying, to the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Then it goes on to say in verse 5, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his canopy, his chuppah, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Psalm 19, in other words, picks up on the same theme, that creation itself, it's as though it's like that canopy, that chuppah, beneath which there is a marriage. And what was that original marriage at creation. Well, it was the the marriage, the union of God and his creatures. It was the uniting of heaven and earth. This is how God originally designed all things to be, that there would be this fundamental union at the heart of all creation, God and his people living together in perfect harmony and communion. And it's just what we see in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. There we see God dwelling among his creatures, living with them in that perfect kind of fellowship so that Adam, he can even just kind of call Adam and be like, hey, Adam, can I give you a job to do? Can you go ahead and just name all of the creatures on the earth? Which Adam must have been like, well, how much time do we have? Okay. But he was happy to do it. It was a joyful thing to live in that close communion and fellowship with his creator, which is what we are all made for. To live in that union, which is like a marriage at the very heart of the universe. But this is also why what happens in Genesis 3, what we often call the fall, why that is so utterly devastating. See, it's not just a a stumbling into sin. It's not even just a breakup. What happens in Genesis 3, in that entrance of sin into the world, is nothing less than a grand cosmic divorce. It's an utter rift, rent in the very fabric of the cosmos. It's a rift between God and humanity, between heaven and earth, and at death, a death that becomes assured because of sin. It's a rift between our bodies and our souls. That's fundamentally what death is. So that now we have this divorce at the heart of creation rather than a marital union, that coming together. And we still feel the consequences of it in so many ways. But it's where things go from there that I want to focus on with the rest of this morning. Because God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, okay, now you're divorced from me. I'll send you away. We are done with one another. And The place to look already there in Genesis 3 is the question that God asks. He says to Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? Not first and foremost, what have you done? But where are you? Because I've created you to be in union and communion with me. And I am going to spend the rest of history seeking you out. There's a a rabbi by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel 
who wrote a book on the story of the Old Testament, and he entitled it, God in Search of Man. Because indeed, that's the story from the fall on. It's God in search of man, him coming after us, as one person has called him, the hound of heaven. He is the God who goes in pursuit of his human creatures in order to bring us back to himself, in order to reunite with us, in order that he might dwell among us once again. Now, we could spend all morning and much longer than that recounting that whole story of the Old Testament and all the ways that we see God putting this into action. But let me just for a moment mention the, the provisional solution that is created to this problem of that divorce from God and humanity. The provisional solution that we see in the Old Testament is the creation of the tabernacle and later the temple after that. And what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was essentially a tent. Now, it was a really fancy tent, so it was kind of like spiritual glamping, okay? Uh, but this is where God said, Make this tabernacle for me that I may dwell among them. That was the purpose of it that he sets forth in Exodus 25. Make this tabernacle for me that I might dwell among them. In other words, by making this tabernacle, it'll be a place where we can in some small way recover what was lost with the fall. And Le Leviticus 26 says the same thing. It reiterates it and says, you will make this temple so that I may dwell among my people. And then, echoing Genesis 3, and I will walk among them once again. That's God's heart desire, to dwell among his people, to be reunited with them. And so we see throughout the Old Testament, it's the story of God in search of man, pursuing us, coming after us, even as we rebel again and again and again. It's a, a story that's told in a delightful children's book, which is in heavy rotation in the Tenetti household right now from the same author who brought you Goodnight Moon. She also wrote a lesser known book called The Runaway Bunny. And in The Runaway Bunny, you have this little ingrate of a bunny who's dead set on running away from his very loving bunny mom, okay? And he says, I'm going to run away from you. I'm going to become a trout so I can swim away. I'm going to become this, that, and the other thing, all for the purposes so that I can get away from you, my loving parent. So, gosh, okay, guy. But as the story goes on, we hear over and over and over again the, the mother of that runaway bunny saying, if you become a trout, I'll become a fisherman, and I will reel you back in. If you try to, to join the circus and you jump onto the trapeze, then I too will become an acrobat in order to bring you back to myself over and over and over again. Until finally at the end of the story, he says, okay, can I have a carrot? There you go. This is the story of the scriptures of God in search of man, even as we all like sheep have gone astray, we all like bunnies have run away, he keeps pursuing you and me in order that he might dwell among us once again, until finally, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. In other words, he incarnated himself. He became one of us in order to reclaim us and bring us back. In order that, as it says in John, in John chapter 1, the word became flesh to what? Dwell among us. But John's word literally is tabernacle among us. 
Restore and recover what was lost in the fall. Undo that divorce and make that reunion once again. His name, after all, is Emmanuel, God with us. And even after our Lord is risen from the dead and ascends into heaven, then he sends his spirit into our hearts so that now you are the temple of God in whom God dwells. You see this movement. He's getting closer and closer and closer, recovering what was lost, reuniting what had been rent asunder so that now he dwells in your heart through faith. But he is not done yet. See, there is still one more final movement in this message of salvation. There is one final thing for our God to do if he is going to reclaim and recover what was lost in the fall. And that brings us back to John's vision in Revelation 21. Because when John is depicting what it looks like in this new heavens and the new earth, how does he describe it? But as a wedding. What does John see? He sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Because at the heart of the cosmos is union, is matrimony, and it will come once again when our Lord returns and reunites and reconciles all things. That's what we are waiting for. And yet there's even more than that. And I was reminded of it yesterday. This past week, as most of you know, I went out to the Northwest where I took all of the cold weather from here and I took it with me up to Idaho where it snowed on us my first day there. I said, oh, this feels very familiar. When I left, it still in many ways felt like winter here. The leaves were not on the trees. The buds had not blossomed. But then I came back just a few days later, and I looked around yesterday morning and felt like a kid at Christmas, or perhaps better put, a kid at Easter. Because suddenly I looked around, and in the twinkling of an eye, all things had been made new. The leaves were out, and there were the blossoms. The smells of spring were all around me. And this is but a foretaste of what you and I are awaiting, friends. That when Christ comes again, when there is the the reversal of that cosmic divorce and the restoration of that cosmic union, the communion and the fellowship that we are made for in that final marriage feast of the Lamb and His kingdom, then our Lord will say, Behold, I am making all things new. And notice this, he doesn't say, I am making all new things. It's not the case that this new heaven and new earth is God first just balling up this creation and saying, ah, that was a mistake, let me start over from scratch. No, instead, this is a better understood as a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. Greek has two words for new. The one is naos, which means like brand spanking new, you might say, new out of nothing, and kainos, which is renewed, restored. That's the word that's used here in Revelation 21. That's what we have, is God taking this old world and sloughing it off like the skin of a snake and instead making it all renewed. This is, this is why we love stories of restoration and renewal. It's why we watch shows like Fixer Upper, right? 
because we have this longing to see things be restored and remade. And that's what our Lord is going to do. What he did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, that's what he's going to do for all creation, including you and me, resurrected, renewed, and restored, and reunited with the God who made us and married us. What are we waiting for? What we are waiting for is sin to be no more. What we are waiting for is pain to be no more. What we are waiting for is mourning to be no more. What we are waiting for is tears to be no more. What we are waiting for is cancer to be no more. What we are waiting for is war to be no more. What we are waiting for is death to be no more. Can I get an amen? amen. That's what we are waiting for. And in this little while, as Jesus says, we go through the pains of childbirth, but know this, that it is not for nothing, and that God is bringing forth his glorious new creation in a little while, and it could be today. And so, in the midst of the sorrow and the struggle and the pain, we stand steadfast. Because when you know what you are waiting for, you know what you are waiting for. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.